Cloud computing was something much different in 2011 when Brian Gracely and Aaron Delp started The Cloudcast, a podcast about cloud computing that I listen to on a regular basis. The Cloudcast features technical discussions about cloud infrastructure technology, and one of the most recent shows was a monologue by Brian Gracely where he explained his perspective on these industry rumblings about a Docker fork. In retrospect, I probably thought a little too much of these Docker fork rumors, or I probably misunderstood where they were coming from, and Brian helps to clear up a lot of this information. The utility of a container fits so many different purposes, and this leads to different organizations having differing preferences for what use case is going to be optimized for. So if you're Docker, you're thinking about different use cases, perhaps, than Google, who is focused on Kubernetes. The impression that I took away from this conversation, as well as the next episode that will air with Joe Bita, is that the diverse opinions and the products in the container and orchestration ecosystem is quite healthy. We are not in a situation where there's some horrible rift happening, like it is easy to get the uh, impression of from Twitter and other things being taken out of context. Brian does a really good job of explaining his perspective on this Docker potential fork matter, maybe not fork. Uh, explaining his pr- he explains his perspective quite well on the Cloudcast, and so I encourage you to check that out. He also discusses his beliefs in this episode, which I hope you enjoy. I enjoy talking to him greatly. Brian Gracely is the Director of Product Strategy at Red Hat, as well as the co-host of The Cloudcast, which is one of my favorite podcasts. Brian, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Appreciate the feedback on the podcast. Absolutely. So today we're going to talk about the Docker fork, potentially, the potential Docker fork, the Kubernetes ecosystem, uh, cloud technologies more generally. Um, We'll talk some about The Cloudcast. Um, But I want to start by talking about this Docker fork stuff and for those who have no context on the potential Docker fork, there are a number of good podcasts. You can check out the Cloudcast. That you recently did a great episode about this. Uh, I did an episode with Alex and Job of the New Stack. Uh, they were the ones who basically broke this story uh, about the discussions around the Docker fork. And you know, when they broke that story, they were very careful to qualify that most of what they were taking their story from was conversations that kind of took place behind closed doors. And that was one aspect that kind of makes this story hard for me to totally understand because it feels like there are certain things that people can and cannot say publicly. So when when we read Twitter or we see something on the new stack that's like a quote from people from CoreOS or Kubernetes, how... How do we sort through the diplomacy and figure out the subtext of what's actually going on? Yeah, so it, 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 it's a good question. I, I think, um, you know, we we have a lot of respect for for what Alex and his team do at, at the New Stack. Um, you know, in terms of in terms of this, I, I think there's there's a couple of things that people kind of have to really keep in mind here, right? There's um, you know, the first thing I always tell everybody is, is there's a very distinct difference between, um, you know, Docker, what I'll call little D Docker, the, the technology community, the, the open source project and, and big D Docker, Docker incorporated, right. The, the company, the formal commercial company that's run by, by Ben and Solomon and, and everybody else over there. Um, and I, and I think what they, what they talked about in their, in their article was, probably less of some sort of formal uh, plan or a bunch of, you know, clandestine stuff happening behind the scenes. And and really, I think what they were kind of conveying was, was maybe some frustration from various people, uh, you know, across the, you know, the Docker community, across other communities um, with really a, just a, an overall uh, industry interest in, in trying to have a standardized, not only container runtime, but also a container format. And, you know, as, a, as an industry, um, you know, this issue isn't sort of a brand new issue. It came up a year and a half ago when CoreOS uh, introduced this thing called Rocket, which was, um, you know, kind of an alternative, uh, an alternative to Docker 
And, and if you looked at what they brought up as issues, you know, a year and a half ago, they said, Hey, look, um, you know, we're looking at, at Docker, a little D Docker, the community. Um, there are some things that we believe need to get addressed or, or focused on more, uh, have, have a greater focus. So in their case, it was around security and, uh, you know, trying not to make the code base too complicated. Um, and at the time when, when Rocket got created, uh, you know, the folks at CoreOS kind of just said, hey, we've, we've been trying very hard to work within the Docker community and we weren't seeing that happen um, for, for various reasons and they're, they're documented and, and laid out. Um, so they went and they went and, and created an alternative uh, approach to, to how to do containers. Um, I think where we are today is not so much, um, you know, any individual company or any group trying to, to create an alternative. I think it's, it's, we're seeing more and more people that are very interested in, in trying to create a standard. And, um, you know, that's really what, what the OCI was, was created for, uh, you know, it kind of brought together Docker, uh, the Docker project and the rocket project to a certain extent. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, I can speak on Red Hat's behalf. That's, that's where we would like to see all this stuff happen. We're not interested in a fork. We're interested in seeing the OCI sort of evolve and, and create a, a common standard. So about a little more than a year ago, I think there was this, when the OCI was created, mm-hmm. there was this event where I guess somebody from CoreOS and somebody from Docker were on stage at DockerCon. They're shaking hands. They're talking about an alliance between CoreOS and Docker that is embodied in the OCI. And then over the past year, that hasn't really come to fruition. Like Docker is kind of part of the OCI in 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 wording, but I guess not in spirit. Are they just? Did they just kind of not? Did they not like the direction that the OCI was going, or the direction the OCI was going was inconvenient for them, or what exactly happened there? Because I thought that we there was a truce that was going to happen. Yeah, you know, I I think the way to think about it, and and again, you know, I always try and call out there's. There's different things between an open community and and sort of the commercial desires of, of any individual company. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, Docker, and I don't want to speak, you know, for, for them as, as the commercial entity, but I think, you know, they saw there was on one hand, you know, they had done some amazing work in terms of, you know, creating this Docker technology, making containers easier to to set up and to run. Um, you know, and, and so there's a certain amount of them wanting to, uh, you know, be rewarded uh, for for that work. And and then at the same time, you know, they've any company that that is is dealing with this is trying to figure out how do I make the potential market for what I'm doing as big as possible, and and realize that that the you know the broader the potential market is, the less that market is interested in only one, one solution, one vendor, one offering and so forth. And, um, you know, so I think there's, there's just been, um, kind of an evolving maturity and a very, very fast moving market to where, um, you know, Docker Inc and, and Docker, the community, um, or, you know, OCI, the, the foundation is, is trying to figure out, you know, what is that right balance between, you know, allowing Docker Incorporated to to move at a pace that they want to move at, and uh, at the same time satisfying this this big market demand for you know just a, a standard you know solid stable uh, base of of container images and, and container technology you know container runtimes and you know I, I think there's still some some evolution going on there and I think to a certain extent. Um, you know, it's just, it, I don't want to say they're conflicting interests, but I think they're, you know, people have different, uh, different needs. Um, and, you know, we're, we're all sort of working through what that means. Right. And what it means in terms of Docker is they have raised a lot of money, they're have billion dollar valuation, and they're trying to figure out how can they make money off of this technology sure. that they basically developed and popularized. Um, and the, the recent thing that happened was they had this built-in swarm support uh, for their so for their orchestration engine, and my sense is the community really didn't like that. Um, so, I mean, was this was this swarm stuff was merging in support for the swarm? Was this really the reason for the acrimony that has developed, or was this just kind of the straw that broke the camel's back? 
Well, I mean, let, let, let's make one thing really clear. Um, there is no Docker fork at this point. There is no, you know, sort of um, alternative thing. There is, you know, there's there's Docker, uh, which, you know, tons of technology support. There's OCI, which is, is uh, you know, has created a, you know, uh, run C and app C sort of format and runtime. Um, you know, so, so there is not a, a fork at this point in time. And, you know, we may never see any sort of fork out of this. Um, you know, I, I don't think it was so much, uh, not expected by the industry, right. You know, all you have to do is, you know, if you, if you go back a little bit, um, you know, Docker, the, the company was, was, came out of what used to be a, a PaaS platform, you know, it used to be called dot cloud and, and dot cloud created a, you know, had created a, a PaaS platform similar to, you know, what cloud foundry builds, what OpenShift builds, what Heroku builds. Um, and then they, they, you know, they took a piece of that technology, uh, as, as they were unwinding that company. Um, and, and what we're seeing is, you know, people realize that in order to run these modern applications, in order to run containers, you need more than just the container, right? You need the scheduler, you need orchestration, you need registry security, you know, all these other things, networking and security. And, um, you know, so it wasn't unexpected by anybody that, that Docker would start building up these things. I think what surprised people was, um, a little bit is they had previously always built them in very much the Unix fashion where everything was its own individual tool. Um, as Solomon likes to say, sort of batteries included, but, but removable. Um, and, and the, the inclusion of swarm within Docker machine was, sort of a divergence from that approach, right? You, you were building a much more tightly coupled set of elements. And, um, you know, so I, I think the people that have uh, supported things like Mesos and uh, Kubernetes and, and some of the other kind of necessary technologies, they have to start looking at, okay, um, you know, what, what alternatives do I have to consider if, uh, you know, the, the thing that, is one of these sort of standard building blocks may become, you know, more more entangled than it was previously, or something that you don't have as, as, as open access to, uh, as we previously had. And, and, you know, again, this stuff all happened sort of in April. It's very, very new. It got a lot of people sort of thinking about what it means. Um, but you still have tons and tons of work going on to make, uh, Docker work with Kubernetes, Docker work with Mesos. We're seeing Docker, you know, working with Cloud Foundry. So there isn't really sort of a, a rift uh, or a, you know, a full, any sort of full technical split other than kind of the media trying to create a, you know, a war amongst, amongst people that, that hasn't really happened at all yet. Well, it does seem like there's something brewing there because, so maybe we're not talking about a fork, but in the case of CRIO, which is this way of managing containers in Kubernetes without the necessity of Docker, this would be kind of an obviation of Docker. And this would be, you know, if if Docker wasn't actually needed to use Kubernetes, then that's, I mean, it seems like a somewhat of a threat to Docker's business. Um, and so, like, since, since Red Hat is a big you know the top two contributors to CRIO are from Red Hat. So why why is CRIO so important to Red Hat? Um, how you know as CRIO develops and makes Kubernetes work without Docker, where does that where does that leave Docker? And I mean, how does that develop the ecosystem? Yeah. So let me let me clarify a couple of things just, and then we'll we'll put that into context. So. Um, so there are a lot of things that are, that are very important to, to Red Hat from a container perspective. We're probably the second or third largest contributor to Docker. Uh, so we've been, you know, huge supporters of Docker, uh, for a number of years. Uh, you know, it's, it's available in RHEL and, and RHEL Atomic and so forth. So we're, we're huge supporters of what Docker is doing. We actively uh, work in that community. We're probably the number two contributor to Kubernetes. Uh, and we've, you know, we've actively been trying to get behind that, um, this thing called CRIO is, you know, within Kubernetes for a long time, there has been um, at least a reference, uh, you know, a document, reference document that talks about an implementation of what a sort of Kubernetes native container format, container runtime would look like. And, you know, just like in any uh, open source project or series of projects, 
Um, somebody's going to write the code to do that. And then, you know, the community sort of figures out, is this something we want? Is this something we like this implementation? Is, is there a better way of doing that? Um, and so, you know, the way to think about CRIO at this point is it is a, uh, it's an open source, uh, implementation of something that's been in the, the Kubernetes spec for a long time. Um, yes, a couple of people from, from Red Hat happened to write it. Um, and it was something that, you know, is sort of there as a reference implementation. Um, it wasn't, you know, built to be at this point, anything more than that. Um, we will, we will see if, uh, you know, customers who like to use Kubernetes companies who like to use Kubernetes, um, feel like it's a good idea. And, and at this point it's, you know, one of a million other open source projects that live on GitHub and we'll see what sort of community forms around it. But, you know, the, the way to read it is, is not, uh, this is, you know, Red Hat somehow trying to, to create a fork or tra- create some sort of animosity. We still, you know, we contribute, you know, an absolute ton of code and resources to Docker, making Docker uh, as stable and, and uh, you know, useful as possible. And the same thing for, you know, Kubernetes and working with Docker and so forth. This is just a sort of a native uh, Kubernetes implementation, and we'll see what people think about it. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I, it's, it's clear that, like, the different players involved here uh, all have, they do all have vested, shared interest in growing the community um, in, the, in the ways that benefit everyone. Yep. But there are also, I mean, there are also business interests sure. here. And, and um, you know, this is, this is obviously a huge market. Um, you know, I liked that you kind of you you let off the the episode of the Cloudcast where you you had a monologue, um, which is really good. I listened to it twice <laughs> about this what's going on yeah. in this ecosystem, uh, and but you you started off saying like motivating it by saying there's this digital transformation thing that's right. going on. And what what you basically describe is. There are all these older companies, whether you're talking about General Mills or American Airlines, or you know, I don't know about these companies, but um, or you know, um, insurance companies, State Farm. You know, these companies are moving. They're first of all, they're moving philosophically towards a faster iteration pace and towards like software is like they're a software business that sells insurance or software bu- business that sells breakfast cereal. You know, we had Gene Kim on the show recently, and he was talking about this this philosophical shift. But um, these companies seem to be leading with the philosophical shift. The technological shift is not far behind, right. and they're going to move to something that is like Kubernetes or like Mesos or cluster some cluster some kind of cl- like easy to use cluster manager that factors out a lot of the work. Um, you know, Cloud Foundry was probably the first generation of of um, you know, kind of your, you know, have your own paths, but there's still so many com- companies that have not done the digital transformation. They're going to be doing it. Right. And there is, you know, whether we want to use the word war or um, business, um, you know, uh, trying to capture as much of the market as possible, the, it seems like, like Red Hat OpenShift is like a, a great pr- product to, to, offer to these types of enterprises where you're saying okay here's here's the enterprise product and you you know you've already got your foot in the door with um you know red hat enterprise stuff and um and it seems like red hat openshift would in some ways be a competitor to docker swarm because they're both kind of easier to use versions of a container orchestrator relative to kubernetes so do you think of openshift as a competitor to docker swarm um, yeah, I, I think that's a fair statement. I think, um, you know, from an OpenShift perspective, we, you know, from a, from a commercial perspective, um, yeah, we would, we would look at things like, uh, commercial implementations of, of Cloud Foundry. Um, you know, I know you had, you had, uh, Sinclair from, from Apprenda on, um, you know, they are a similar commercial platform, um, you know, Docker data center, which is, you know, their sort of commercial offering. Uh, yeah, I, I think we would look at that as a as a competitive technology. I think the big difference here is, and, and we're seeing this with you know with customers all over the place. I, I just had a conversation this morning with a, a very very large insurance company, and you know there, you know there, there's a couple big factors that are that are very much at work here, right? One is, um, you know, they all 
go to events and they listen to things in the news and they, they go to meetups and so forth. And, uh, you know, they all hear about the Ubers and Airbnbs and, and, uh, you know, Netflixes and so forth. And so there, there's a sense of like, okay, um, there's a, there's a potential shift happening in my industry if I'm not aware of it. Um, the second thing is they leave a lot of these events and they go, well, that's great. Um, but nobody, nobody gave me a blueprint for how to get to where I need to go. Nobody's given me a blueprint for how to go faster, how to change my culture. And, um, so there's a lot of work to, to figure that out. Um, but, and, and then the third thing is, you know, a lot of times there's, there's this sort of what I'll call composability. Um, I, you know, I, I think the industry tends to break down into kind of two, two segments in, in terms of these platforms, right? There's some that are very structured. Um, you're going to, you're going to get all of it from, from one single vendor. They will have made, uh, a lot of decisions for you. Sometimes they're, they're called very opinionated platforms. I tend to call them more structured platforms. Um, and, and then there are, you know, a lot of offerings in the marketplace that are a little more, uh, a little more flexible, a little more pluggable or composable where I can, I can leverage an aspect from a certain community or a certain vendor. Uh, but I may also have some flexibility, um, in certain areas of that. So let me kind of round this back to this example I was giving, um, you know, talk to a you know large insurance company this morning. Um, there was aspects of OpenShift that they liked very much. Um, you know, they liked how it integrated with their CI pipeline. They liked how, uh, what the developer input was and, and the developer integration. Um, but they also felt like a, a container registry was a really important part of what they wanted to do. And they had a bunch of requirements that they felt like some, some third party registries, uh, you know, was a better fit for what they wanted. And so they ended up using third party registry container registry services with OpenShift. And, you know, for some platforms that's uh, entirely feasible, right? You're allowed to do that. It, it works. It's supported. Uh, other platforms, you sort of have to buy everything. And I, and I think we're still very much at a stage with customers where, um, you know, there isn't, there isn't really been one winner defined in the marketplace. I think there are you know, some things that are emerging. Um, but yeah. And so, it, you know, as vendors, we're all sort of competing to be, uh, the platform that are going to help those customers get there. Um, but at the same time, I think we all have to be pretty cognizant that customers have a lot of choices. Um, they, you know, they like choice. They, you know, they want flexibility and, um, and we need to be pretty cognizant about making sure that regardless of what choice they pick or what components of choices they pick, that, we're still actively making those communities robust and, and interoperable and, and interchangeable and so forth. And so how does that, um, you know, these different, different providers mm-hmm. like Red Hat sure. or Docker or Cloud Foundry, the fact that they might all be using Kubernetes under the covers, d- d- does do they have different vested interests in how Kubernetes gets built or, or do those like differentiations in platform, does that more manifest just, just at the platform level? And, you know, like philosophically, uh, Red Hat wouldn't disagree with Docker or Cloud Foundry on things that were happening at the Kubernetes level. Like do, are there philosophical differences in like lower level, security or networking stuff that goes on in Kubernetes that uh, that would impact OpenShift in a way that's different than Docker Swarm. I'm just trying to yeah. figure out like yeah, are, no, are there question. conflicts that, that, that are there conflicts that would you know yeah, I think you understand where I'm coming yeah, from. Yeah, so so at a, at a fundamental level um, you know, if you look at so let, let's just take the three examples that you threw out there and, and there there's lots of others. So uh, let's take let's take Swarm, Docker Swarm, Deus or whatever else. Yeah, well, let me let me kind of let me kind of give you a hierarchy of this. So, so let's take Docker Swarm. That's one implementation of a container scheduler. Um, Cloud Foundry uh, under the covers has a, a separate implementation of a container scheduler. It's called Diego, um, and then there's Kubernetes, right? And there's a bunch of companies who today are, are beginning to get more aligned with with Kubernetes. Red Hat's been one of them, obviously. Uh, Google, um, you know, Prenda, Appsera recently, uh, Deus. You know, there's a bunch of companies that are saying, "Hey, under the covers, my my scheduling uh, technology is going to be Kubernetes." Um, you know, some folks that are working with with Cloud Foundry have chosen that one, and then you know, Docker has has Swarm. So th- there are some 
there are some different sort of camps of people that are building these container orchestrators. So that's the that's the first thing to sort of be aware of. Um, and if you and if you compare them, um, on one hand, if you're a developer, for example, you really shouldn't care, right? You you should simply say, uh, I want to give the platform my application, uh, or I want the the platform to interact with my uh, my continuous integration. Uh, platform Jenkins or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and I just want it to run and I want it, you know, I want, and when I say I want it to run, um, it, it should, the networking should just work. The ability to get to storage or persistent data should just work. Uh, load balancing should be enabled when it's supposed to be enabled. Um, it should be smart enough to say, Hey, uh, the system needs to scale up. So, you know, do whatever you have to do to scale it up. So at a certain level, if you're a developer, you shouldn't care about a lot of these things, right? Uh, on the other hand, if you are a, uh, if you're an operator, or to a certain extent, if if your development needs are kind of unique, then you do kind of want to understand well what's the difference between Kubernetes and say Diego or Swarm, because there are some there are some pretty distinct architectural differences between the the different systems, and um, to a certain extent you know, they, they fall into a couple of categories. You know, one of them is, um, you know, how do I, how does the system do things like, um, isolation? So do I isolate at a, at a application level? Do I isolate like at a a group or a company level? Um, how do I associate parts of an application that are supposed to kind of go together, you know, a, a load balancer and a front end. So there's some differences there. Um, there are some differences in how they do networking. Um, in terms of, you know, the, the way that networking is set up between containers, uh, the way that networking works with, you know, the rest of the world. Um, and so there's, there's some distinct things there that, that may or may not be important to you. Um, there's some big differences in how they, uh, present storage or, or persistent data to the system, um, in terms of, you know, does it, does it support, you know, sort of statefulness? Um, do I, can I natively get to storage? Do I have to go through, kind of a, a system of gateways or brokers. Um, and so, you know, that, that's probably a lot more than we would cover in this podcast. But, um, you know, those are things that at kind of an architectural level that, uh, you know, the, the, the Kubernetes world uh, and that community looks at things differently than, uh, say, uh, the, you know, Swarm does or, or, uh, or Cloud Foundry does. And, and there's some trade-offs, um, there's some, some design considerations and so forth. But, you know, it, it all kind of depends on if you're a developer and you really don't want to care or you're more on the operations side and, and you do need to care about those things because they impact, you know, how you're going to keep the application running. I guess I, I probably did, as I'm prone to do, buy into the salaciousness of this uh, potential fork discussion sure. a, a little more than I should have initially because um you know i think about it, there's so many different ways that docker you know when as docker has come out like so many different ways that it's been useful to people whether it's like um replicating you know ha- having having the similar environment to production or um uh being able to um I guess like upload images to to registry like there's so many different things that it's done that has kind of like changed um how people work that uh the idea of docker containers like the the branded docker container what that represents uh is is so much different than what we can talk about in terms of containers that um you know the idea of docker forking mm-hmm. seems seems much different than like the idea of okay containers are really big a really big idea maybe we should have like the the docker platform over here if you want to get started with docker like go do that it's totally fine um but if you say if you're saying like okay i'm a big enterprise i need to move to this platform that is based on containers uh that is a different statement than I want to be in the Docker ecosystem, right? Um, and 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 so and 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 maybe in that in that ecosystem, like it makes a lot more sense to say, okay, I just want a, a boring, stable container because I'm trying to refactor my 
20-year-old insurance company to run on containers. I'm not like some developer that's hacking away at a, at a new startup and I just want my batteries included and mm-hmm. um, I want to be able to move, you know, develop my brand new technology as fast as possible. Like the idea of refactoring a 20-year-old company is much different than some hacker working on uh, a, a brand new startup. So because it, it makes sense to have these um, these more siloed ways of thinking about containers uh, that are nonetheless interoperable. I mean, you, you know, you could you could start on Docker and move to Kubernetes, and eventually be on um, Red Hat OpenShift if you want. And um, these things are not. It seems like we're moving in a direction where these things are not mutually exclusive, and like there is some migration possibility, but there is nonetheless a distinct difference between jumping on the Docker container platform and jumping on some platform whether it's platform as a service or you're running it yourself and um, that that has a the quote boring container thing and the excitement is happening at the orchestration layer yeah I, I, you know I, I think I think the, the way we we think about this is um, you know it, it's it's kind of funny uh, you know everything is everything has sort of become software uh, whether it's infrastructure or whether it's tools to help you know build an application and you know it's whenever people talk about that, they always go, look, you know, the, the underlying plumbing, the underlying infrastructure is, is supposed to be a commodity. It's supposed to be boring. It's the thing that allows kind of innovation to happen up the stack. It allows value to happen up the stack. Um, you know, and, and so it's, it is a little bit interesting that, that people are, are so adamant that, um, you know, you know, why would we have kind of, you know, there's this distinct differentiation at, at a very, very low level thing. Um, the person who I heard best sort of explain this to me uh, was a was a guy named Derek Collison. And Derek, for anybody who doesn't know, um, you know, absolutely brilliant guy. Worked at Google, worked at um, Tibco. You know, invented these just enormous, um, you know, massively scalable distributed systems. Was really the original author of Cloud Foundry way back in the day when it was at uh, uh, VMware, and then went off and spun off and runs his own company now called AppSera. Um, and him and I were talking about a year or so ago. And he said, you know, it, it finally dawned on me, um, you know, where, where all this Docker stuff is going to go. And he said, uh, what the what Docker, the technology has done has has made it really, really simple to describe and package an application. Right. So he said, you know, there's a very clear delineation of, you know, sort of the new tarball format. You know, here's here's how I describe my application. Here's how I package it so that it can be, you know, portable and run anywhere. And he said, but there's a very distinct line there between the thing where you package an application and the thought process that goes on in running that application. And he said, you know, we're going to we're going to see the industry sort of evolve to where those are, you know, those are going to be distinctly different things um, as opposed to, you know, what we had in the past where kind of the entire process had to be, you know, completely in sync and all from one entity or one company or so forth. And and I think that's where the industry is, is kind of trying to sort itself out because prior to, uh, you know, Docker, the company integrating, uh, Docker swarm, which was this, you know, how do I run the technology? You know, how do I run the application technology, uh, uh, integrating with Docker machine, which was the thing that, that packaged it, you know, you could, you could sort of distinctly see like, okay, here's where we innovate around the, the packaging and the ease of use and the developer experience. And then here's where we innovate uh, and, and integrate around the the operational experience. And and when those things sort of started to become blurred, um, you know, it 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 had some people start saying, okay, what is this going to mean in reality? Forget about the companies involved or the VC funding involved or whatever. Like, is this is this the model going forward that that people are going to want to adopt? Especially since you know DevOps is a fantastic thing to talk about. But it does require a massive amount of of change for people to understand this idea that you would have a single entity which does dev and ops and they're completely collaborative and they understand each other and they have the same needs and so forth. And so, you know, I think the 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 architects of a lot of these systems sort of said, hey, let's let's make sure we're thinking about scenarios so that if if a company isn't DevOps, right, they're not sort of one entity of, of dev and ops, but they still want to be able to write software, package it, 
run it in you know production and test and so forth the you know the constructs of the technology don't prohibit them from doing that and i think you know we we feel like you know what's been going on in um in Kubernetes is defines that pretty well, uh, architecturally defines that pretty well. But at the same time, we also think, you know, there's a lot of value in continuing to, to work uh, very hard in the Docker community to make that end user experience really simple. You know, it's uh, Docker, the company should be applauded for making this super powerful technology really, really uh, simple for the, for the developer, giving them a great experience. Uh, We just feel like equally, you know, people should be spending time making, the world possible for those operators that have to, you know, to deal with getting all these different applications and being able to network them and secure them and so forth. And, um, yeah. Okay. So I, I am also curious about the, um, how you see the cloud provider players shaping up with these transformations that are happening. I know it's hard to predict at this point. Does, um, so when Red Hat gets new customers on OpenShift, are they running on Red Hat servers, or do you just do you delegate them to a cloud, or how does that work? Um, so it's a, it's a little bit of a, of a lot of choices. So um, you know, without turning this into a commercial, so yeah. <laughs> um, so the OpenShift software, uh, a customer could could get it and, and run it on their own servers. Um, so think of it as like a private cloud or their own private data center. Um, so they can do that themselves, or they could they could take the software and run it on top of, of anybody's cloud, right? So as long as they, they could run it on RHEL, um, it could be running on top of Azure or AWS or uh, Google or whatever. So at, the, at its core... It's, oh, okay. And, you, and, you can, and in that model, you could do the same, kind of the same kind of model that Red Hat has been doing for a long time where you help them yeah. with, with their support for OpenShift. Right. So, so at a basic level, it's a piece of software that can run anywhere that, that RHEL runs. Um, the, where it gets sort of interesting is, and, and this is the, the, the evolution that's going on, is you know, there's a lot of customers who will say, regardless of which technology they, they chose, um, they'll say, look, I want the outcome, right? I want to be, you know, I want a digital transformation. I want to build my mobile application faster. Um, and, and my business demands that like right now, but I'm not ready for that. Like I either don't have the right operational skills or the right automation skills or, or whatever. Um, and so there's a whole lot of vendors, Red Hat included, but, but the cloud providers as well, who are saying, Hey, look, um, you know, what if we offer you a bunch of services where aspects of that you don't have to deal with anymore. Right. So in the case of OpenShift, we offer, um, we offer a, an on-demand service that the Red Hat runs that, Anybody can get access to. Think of it as a you know big shared public cloud that we run. Um, we actually have on Red Hat servers. That um, actually it's it's OpenShift software that runs on top of AWS, but we okay. we operate it and we manage it, right? Um, okay. So you get the benefit of sort of public cloud scale with a vendor that you know and you know kind of the software and, and services you have. We also okay. offer a a version of that that has sort of um, you know, isolated, dedicated hardware uh, for companies that say, "Hey, you know, we have some some compliance things. How would we do audit in a public cloud and, and so forth?" Um, but the other thing that we're seeing uh, more and more is is you know, so customers. The the biggest thing with with the public cloud providers and, and people ask us this all the time, and we should get into this more on the cloudcast. But you know, everybody goes to kind of go, "Well, who's going to win?" Right. You know, <laughs> right. Amazon seems to be making a bunch of money and, and Google makes announcements and Microsoft's doing interesting stuff. And, you know, who's going to win? I, I think so. I think right now um, they're all they're all doing very, very well. I think they're all um, at different stages of, uh, you know, shifting their business. So in the case of Microsoft, they're shifting. their. There's bus- a lot of market left to capture. Oh, there's tons. I mean, so so the, the things that things take away from it. One. Um, we're not far enough at a stage to say somebody is the winner or, you know, the game is over. Right. Um, the second thing is, you know, most companies are still, you know, and I say companies like larger companies, mid-sized companies, fortune 500 global companies, they're still trying to figure out like, you know, is this, how much of these resources, these on-demand resources, public resources, do I really need? Cause in some cases, um, you know, with the cost of, the cost of money being so cheap in the world today. And, and, and they're looking at people saying, well, you save all this money. And in some cases they go, 
look, I have an application that I know is going to run three to five years. Like I have no problem buying servers or renting servers and depreciating them. Like my cost of capital is super cheap right now that that could obviously change if, you know, things in the world change. But so they're, they're trying to figure out sort of the economics of it. They're also trying to figure out, uh, you know, what is, what does an IT organization look like if things that we used to do for a long time, now we don't do anymore and we focus on something else, right? So we used to rack and stack servers. We used to do networking, you know, somebody else is going to do that for us, but we're still responsible for the application. What does that world mean? And, uh, you know, a lot of them are going, huh, you know, help us with that. Um, and they're asking, you know, every vendor on the planet to help them with that. Um, and then I think the third thing is, you know, it's everybody gets excited every year at AWS reInvent or, you know, uh, Microsoft Insight uh, or, you know, AWS's event or whoever it is. And they go here, we have these 25 new features and we have these 50 new features and these, you know, 10 new instant type for, for compute. And to a certain extent, I, I think they've they've almost overwhelmed the market a little bit in terms of people going like, holy cow, you know, I have all these choices. Like, which one should I Paralysis. Pick? Yeah, it's, you know, it's a little bit like going to a fast food restaurant and, and people now are just like, I'll take the number six because it, it's kind of been chosen for me and it more or less sort of fits what I need. And um, so it's awesome that that all those companies are, are you know, there's these new offerings and their prices are getting cheaper and they're getting faster. Um, but I think as you talk to, you know, IT organizations, like, they're a little overwhelmed, and uh, yeah, and, and I, I can see specific market segments that they're carving out. Like you look at Microsoft and say, like, okay, you know, you're going to bring the people who were on Windows in the last generation into the cloud. Like that's sure. a huge business just on its own. Yep. You look at Google, like okay, Google, you're really good at at hosted machine learning. You're building your own chips for this, and you're obviously going to be really good at Kubernetes. Okay, you can do that. Amazon uh, is you know kind of like Microsoft in the sense that they've got a bunch of Amazon customers already. They can just keep on uh, improving those, and yeah, and obviously you know they've got a huge just foothold in terms of their brand name at this point, so they can keep right. going after startups. Then you've got DigitalOcean over in one corner that focuses on simplicity and UX and uh, kind of indie developers and. Uh, and it's a big market, and it's not winner take all, uh, at least not yet. Um, so you know, one there, thing I'm curious about is, and there's geographies involved. So if you go into the UK, or you go into Germany, or you go into China, and you go, hey, you know, how is how is that DigitalOcean's presence? And they go, no, it doesn't exist here. Or you know, <laughs> right. Azure's not opening a data center here for two years. And yeah, so we're a little US centric so, sometimes. Why do you run on AWS? If Google is the Kubernetes place to be, why are you on AWS? Uh, for OpenShift uh, Online and dedicated, it right part of it is um, you know we started those services a couple of years ago, and and that was the the most efficient place for us to be at that time. Um, we're we're in the process of spinning up versions of of OpenShift Online and dedicated that run on Google uh, that run on. Uh, Google Cloud as well as Azure Cloud. So, you know, in some cases, like we don't really care. Uh, like, you know, we build what's looked at as a container or a PaaS platform. So it's kind of agnostic to the underlying cloud. Um, but, you know, our customers, a lot of times, you know, they're they're very smart and they, they know what goes on and they go, hey, I'm, um, I mean, I'll give you a perfect example. If, if you have a retail customer today um, they're very averse to running, you know, their, their workloads on top of AWS if they perceive AWS right. as being competitive to them. And so <laughs> right. know, a lot of times they will say, uh, I want to run in a public cloud, but I want it to be on, you know, Google, or I want it to be on, uh, Microsoft or, or something. And, and so we're trying to respond to that. I think, um, I'd have to look at the roadmap and timelines, but, you know, before the end of the year, we'll have comparable instances available on those other clouds and people can just sort of say, I don't care. And, you know, you guys can put it wherever you want to give me the best price or best latency or whatever. In other cases, they'll go, no, it needs to be on, on this one. And in some cases we're going to see things where people say, you know what? I love that new Google, like, uh, I don't know, facial recognition, machine learning thing. I want you to put my other applications really close to that because those things are important to me. Right. And I want to reduce latency or, or I want to, you know, keep all the data in one location. So that's still evolving, um, but yeah, our our goal is to make it as agnostic as possible. Yeah, so uh, you know, kind of, I guess we're on low time, but I, I want to talk about the 
serverless stuff mm-hmm. a bit. I mean, you you are starting a podcast d- dedicated to serverless soon, which I'm really looking forward to, the serverless cast. Um, and you've done shows on the Cloudcast about serverless. How do you think? I mean, how do you think this stuff is developing? What, like, are you seeing enterprises onboarding with serverless, or is this still very much something that is relegated to um, crazy people in you know <laughs> startups and um, or or I mean maybe just the the. I guess there are ones that are a little more mature, um, like Iron IO. Those that's probably being more adopted a little bit more aggressively by enterprises. Yeah. Um, it it really um, so you know as we as we get a chance to talk to people about this, um, it really is more application centric than it than it feels like it is sort of size of company centric. Um, so you know the the maturity model of it is still very much um, you know kind of where some of the early clouds were, you know, early on, you know, or, or where Docker was, say, a couple of years ago, right? It's it's kind of bleeding edge people. Um, the thing that's been really interesting to us and is sort of driving our interest in it is, you know, when people tell you, hey, it's, you know, if, if I get my application the right way, if I figure out how to break down an application into functions and I can run them in in some serverless environment, whether it's a AWS Lambda or, you know, something else, um, they, you know, they go, Hey, I, I save 80%. I, you know, I've, I've seen sort of cost savings of 80% of my compute. And the thing that Aaron and I always say is like, you know, if you save somebody 10, 15, 20%, that's no big deal. But when you start saving them almost an order of magnitude of money, that starts to people, it starts to make people go like, Oh, I, you know, friction somewhere else can be managed, can be managed. Right. So, um, you know, I saw I saw somebody this morning had written up a nice thing about, uh, you know, running their you know email marketing system as a serverless thing, and I you know saw some other people uh, you know doing things about you know search for the front end of their of their company doing search, and you and you look did at, they talk about how much cost savings they had? Um, the search one, yeah, the search one talked about you know they kind of had to rewrite the application to get it into a, you know kind of functions. Uh, but they were saving about 80%. Um, we had a guy on the show on the Cloudcast uh, I don't know, a couple of months ago who runs a company that um, they're called BuildFax. And they're essentially like Carfax for commercial builders. So if you want to go buy an old building and you want to know the details of like the plumbing or the heating system, um, they offer these services. They run theirs. You know, they've told us they save roughly 80%. Um, and, you know, the thing that you find with this community is, I mean, you've got to be pretty dedicated to, you know, rewriting your application or writing it from scratch, right? It's not, it's not like a virtual machine or even a container that you can kind of pick something up. Um, but for people that kind of identify like, hey, my application looks like this, or it could be broken down like that, um, you know, they're, they're super passionate about it because I think they're well, seeing a benefit like right away. Or, well, you know, well so like this that. is, this is, this is what's funny is it's, it's like a, it's such a different market pressure. You know, we're talking, we've been talking about containers and mm-hmm. platform as a service for the whole time, which like makes your application easier to run, easier to reason about. And then we have the serverless pressure where the application becomes harder to work with, harder to reason about, but you get massive more yeah. cost. I mean, maybe in the long run, it makes the application easier to reason about because you say, okay, this part of the application is stateless. If you try to make it stateful, your container is going to disappear and you're, you know, you're, it's not going to work. Yeah. So I, I saved a crap load of money and I made my operational world or troubleshooting world like a nightmare. So is, yeah. that, is that good or bad? I don't, yeah, you know, we don't know yet. Um, but it, you know, it, it's just, it highlights once again, like, you know, technology markets, especially these days, like there isn't one winner, right? There is, and there really isn't even kind of one approach to, to doing things. You, you tend to have this, this, uh, this spectrum and, and, um, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll put it just in a different context, like from an open shift or even any of us platform as a service containers, as a service vendors, like we're all going, well, you know, should we make serverless or functions as a service, like a feature of our platform? If people really like that, cool. Like we should, we should try and support that. And, um, you know, we've got some ways to do that. I mean, we, we partner with folks like iron IO. Um, there's an open source project called functions with a K F U N K T I O N S or something like that. Um, you know, so there's ways to do it. We, we have had customers. I mean, I've talked to customers who will say, Hey, 
Um, you know, do, do you support this stuff or, you know, should we even consider you? Maybe we should just go all Lambda, you know, and you kind of want to tell people to calm down a little bit. And, you know, again, do you have, do you actually have an application where this would make sense? And, but they, they, they see some of these numbers or they, they, you know, they'll go to a serverless conference or something and there's an appeal to it. Cause again, it sounds interesting. The, the numbers sound interesting and, um, you know, technologists are always wanting to tinker. So, um, you know, from a, from a, from a podcast perspective, we're, you know, we always sort of say like, Hey, we like to sort of dip our toes in the water 18 months ahead or two years ahead and just sort of see what's coming. I don't know what we're going to get into with this one. You know, like there's a lot of hype. Um, there's a lot of back backlash already. People hate the name serverless and you know, Oh, there's servers under the covers and yeah, okay, whatever. Um, but we'll see. It's, um, you know, it's definitely uh, an interesting sort of niche right now. And if it becomes bigger, we'll see. Hmm. Yeah. Do you think? I mean, what are the what are going to be the business models that are developed on top of serverless? I mean, AWS was pretty straightforward to see some of the business models that could be developed on that. You um, could because we had the pretty um, you know it was an obvious paradigm shift. Okay, you're going from servers in Iraq somewhere to servers in a cloud somewhere. Uh, and then we've seen this incredible compounding interest of the quality of software since right. um, since cloud has happened. Like, are we going to see that with this with serverless? Like, are we going to have people that just build the right abstractions and then it's just going to like lower cost even more? Or like, have you thought about how in what direction this is going to compound? Um, I, I, you know, I I think it it follows the the kind of core technology paradigm of, of, of cheaper and faster. Um, you know, the, the real question becomes, um, you know, a lot of these platforms and a lot of these technologies. So Lambda is a little bit different cause it's built on some, some kind of internal AWS technology that, you know, it's funny enough was built to be kind of a, uh, what did they call it? It's sort of like, it's like a, you know, uh, unzip, you know, batch processing, you know, it was there to, they use it from, they got it from somewhere else and, and they realized like, oh, it's, it's just good for this sort of like individual tasks, but a lot of them. So like open sh- um, open whisk from IBM and, um, some stuff from, from iron IO and, and from a lot of people are all built around containers. And so, you know, containers give us the core ability to go spin it up super fast, tear it down super fast. It doesn't cost you hardly anything from a compute perspective. Um, so I think the good news for folks that are, you know, even tinkering with serverless is like, there is a bunch of years of expertise that that's built up behind this stuff that you're going to benefit from, you know, whether you're using a container platform today, or you're thinking about it down the road, um, you know, and, and for those of us building it, you know, the nice thing is we're not all starting from scratch. Like we're, we're building on top of kind of the shoulders of giants and, um, but in terms of business model, um, you know, there are going to be people that figure out like, I mean, it's just like, it's just like Uber, right? The Uber people basically just said like, look, um, you know, what does a transportation business look like? Well, there's a control plane to it. And then there's the physical assets. Well, the physical assets are unbelievably expensive. So if I took that out of the, out of the equation and I just managed the control plane, you know, is there value in that? And, and they've obviously figured out, yeah, there's, there's a lot of value in that. And you can, you know, you can create an experience. Um, other people are going to look at, aspects of business processes or new business processes. And they're going to say like, Hey, if I only have to focus on this part of it, right. And that part of it can be built using serverless or, you know, even using a, you know, a platform, you know, just using containers. Um, you know, people are going to, are going to figure out how to do that if there's a way to, uh, you know, make money. And, and I mean, the way to think about it is like at a, at a really high level, the, the cost of entry, the barrier to entry to get into, to sort of disrupting some of these markets continues to get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And so, um, you know, somebody, some kid in a college dorm with an idea can go do some stuff. He doesn't, you know, we're going to see people that don't have to take a hundred million dollars in funding. They can do it through, you know, $25,000 grant or a angel thing. And and that may spin up into something really cool. So, um, it's, it's faster, it's lower friction. Um, but you still got to come up with a great idea and you still got to you know, get people to, to adopt it at some point, you know, basic business one-on-one. It is interesting how these, these changes in economics at the fundamental technology level, they end up 
propagating to the business level. And sometimes it takes time. Sometimes it just takes somebody, like you said, in a college dorm who is looking at this with fresh eyes and says, wow, uh, this cost over here certainly seems low relative to the amount of money I can make off of it. And then, you know, uh, one year later, they've got a, a big business and we're all saying, wow, why didn't we see that before? Um, and when you have these like fundamental um, cost shifts, like an 80% drop in compute cost, uh, that's, you know, it's just, it's hard to imagine that won't unlock some kind of uh, fundamental change. Yeah. Well, and, and the other side, and we, you know, we, th- this would be a really fun show to do kind of a big, you know, big long thing, but I mean, um, what's going to be really interesting is, you know, we spent a lot of years here trying to build these new technologies. And, and now that people are able to build these businesses so fast, um, you know, you, you start to get some, some repercussions that maybe you didn't think about. So I mean, like if you're, you know, let, let's say you're Uber or your Airbnb, you know, not only do you have to build like a cool technical experience, but you've got to convince people that like, Hey, it's, it's safe to go into a stranger's house or, uh, it's safe to, you know, get into a stranger's car or, you know, are there laws and regulations that I'm going to have to go lobby against in order to get my technology out there? And, you know, quite honestly, a lot of those companies that have taken so much money, you know, the technology wasn't that expensive to build, but the, 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 the down market stuff has been, you know, incredibly expensive. And, and so, you know, we, no, nothing comes super cheap and free. I mean, there's aspects of it that, that do come very uh, lower cost, but, you know, we tend to find that uh, it impacts other parts of the, of the industry. And especially if you're, if you're going into a really big established industry, you know, people are going to, are going to try and fight you and, and put up barriers and, and those barriers might not always be technical. They might be the other things too. So that's going to be really fascinating to watch over the next few years. Hmm. So, okay, just to wrap up, um, speaking of an industry that has been around for a while, although one that is not necessarily rapidly changing, uh, podcasting, you started the Cloudcast five years ago. What what was podcasting like back then? What what were you reporting on? Like, what was cloud what was cloud computing like? And like, what has changed over the last five years? Yeah. So, um, so a couple of things. So when we first started. Um, I mean, the reason we did it was we don't live in Silicon Valley. We live out in Raleigh, North Carolina. And so it was a, it was an opportunity for us to get closer to, to emerging technologies and and people that were doing cool stuff. So, um, you know, the, the internet breaks down a bunch of barriers. It's amazing how many people, uh, you know, with all these social communities, you know, are are wanting to talk about stuff and, and wanting to reach out to people. But we started, um, you know, talking about sort of convergence of infrastructure. I mean, we were talking about, you know, compute and storage and networking all getting managed together and, and kind of the ops side of DevOps. Um, so that was, you know, when we first got started, it was, um, you know, how do you get connected to communities? Um, the second thing that's been really interesting for us is, you know, now now podcasts are, are pretty popular, like sort of everybody has one and, you uh, you know, which is, it's fantastic. Like people have a voice. You see a lot of people that, that are talking about interesting topics. Um, you know, I, I think that the trick is you want to find a format that, that people will, they want to get drawn to, you know, you've got to be consistent about it and you've got to have the, the audio quality good. And, and, um, you know, it's <laughs> to us, it's always really interesting when somebody will send us like literally like 2000 words about, I mean, we had, we had one person, we had one person send us like 2000 words and and the net net of it was, um, I love your show. I love the content you're making my ears bleed. And, and I, and I just can't stand listening to you anymore because, because the audio quality is bad or it's, or, you know, your guests sound funny or, you know, so, so people hold podcasters to a really high standard these days, even though, you know, um, you know, most of us are just doing it as a hobby. So it's, it's, you know, for us, like, it's been such an awesome opportunity to meet lots of people in the industry. We go to a lot of events and people go like, Oh, we listen to your show. And it's like, Oh, wow. Cool. Uh, uh, who are you? You know, cause you don't get a lot of direct feedback and, um, asymmetric intimacy. Yeah, exactly. But, um, it's, it's definitely become part of people's lives. I mean, when they tell you that, like, Hey, I listen to you every day driving into work or I'm listening to you as I'm running. I mean, like it's a, it's kind of a personal experience and you, you try and hold yourself accountable and I don't know. I mean, we, we have so much fun doing it. We've met so many smart people and, um, it's cool to get, you know, to be, uh, you know, a little part of what's going on in the future of technology because it impacts people's lives. Totally. No, it's uh, very similar to why I started this show is I was in Seattle and 
I got I just got the feeling I was like total missing out what's going on in San Francisco. So let's just make something that gives me an excuse to call anybody in San Francisco and ask them uh, what am I what am I missing in the Bay Area? Um, uh, and you know I think what you say about the intimacy uh, with the listener is. It's quite relevant. Um, there's this guy, Nick Kwa, who writes all about podcasts. He's got a, a pretty good newsletter about the podcast industry called Hot Pod. And I heard an interview with him, and he was he was just saying that, like, really the thing that makes people so addicted to podcasts is the intimacy and just, like, the hearing, hearing conversation, you know, I think particularly for people who are a little more isolated or they spend most of their day isolated or they're, they get home and they feel alone and they, they're just washing dishes and like, you know, hearing a conversation, just like two people talking about cloud computing is like, it's like company. It's like you're you're getting company. And um, anyway, I think they get to know, they get to know you and they know all about you and uh, yeah. yeah. So it's uh, great. All right, Brian. Well, um, thanks for coming on the show. Great conversation. The time flew by. I hope to see you at one of these conferences sometime soon, and uh, I will continue listening to the Cloudcast. Yeah, thank you very much, and thanks for having and, us. And uh, we will uh, we will tell our friends all about the show. Okay, great. And and looking forward to Serverless Cast. Do you have a launch date yet? Uh, we're hoping to do it here um, around the date when the the Serverless Conference goes out. So hopefully by the end of October, we just uh, we got to get a few odds and ends tied up. But uh, yeah, should be very soon. Okay, great. Well, uh, are you going to the Serverless Conference? Uh, we're not because it overlaps um, something that we have going on back home. But uh, we're gonna we're gonna do some shows uh, with those people uh, prior to the show. So lots of good coverage about that. Great. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks to Symphono for sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other. Check it out at symphono.com slash sedaily. That's S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-O dot com slash sedaily. Thanks again, Symphono. Wow. 